The Dark Crusade, a podcast dedicated to the life and work of Carl Edward Wagner, has begun its second season solely dedicated to Wagner's gothic fantasy villain hero, Kane. The Dark Crusade podcast explores the publishing history, literary influences, selected readings, and insights into Wagner's cursed swordsman. Join hosts Jordan and Jonathan as they discuss the stories of the immortal swordsman cutting his way across continents, wielding dark sorcery, a cunning mind, and a blood-drenched blade. Subscribe on iTunes, follow on Facebook and Instagram, and join the Dark Crusade today. Hey there, it's Rob from the Grim Tidings Podcast. Well, we are back after a short little breaky break. Me and Phil took the summer off. We had some life events going on, but we are back in full force, ready to bring you fresh GTP goodness, and we are back with a fantastic interview. Fonda Lee is on the show today, author of Jade City, now available in paperback from Orbit. Not only is this an awesome interview, but we also have a special reading of Jade City by Fonda Lee directly after the podcast. So be sure to stick around at the conclusion of the interview for that for a special excerpt from Jade City. Thanks again for sticking with us. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a review if possible. And thanks again to the Dark Crusade podcast for sponsoring today's episode. This is author Raymond V. Feist. Hi, this is R. Scott Baker. This is Anthony Ryan. The Grim Tidings podcast welcomes Delilah S. Dawson to the show. Delilah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is literary agent Mark Gottlieb from Trident Media Group. This is David Anthony Durham. Hi, this is Melanie Metters. Hi, this is Brian Stavely. Hello, this is Jesse Bullington slash Alex Marshall. Hi, this is Jeff Salyards. Hi, this is Michael R. Fletcher. The Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Steven Erickson to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward Hi, I'm Fonda Lee, the author of Jade City, and you're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. You're listening to the Grim Tidings Podcast. I'm Rob Matheny. And I'm Philip Overby. Our guest today got started writing at a young age and by the fifth grade had written her very first novel about a dragon on a quest for a magic pendant. In high school, inspiration struck again with a second novel, a comic hero saga she co-wrote on a graphic calculator she shared with a friend. Sadly, these early works are lost to the world, but our guest today went on to pursue her love for telling stories. After an illustrious career as a corporate strategist working for Fortune 500 companies, she released her first young adult sci-fi novel, Zero Boxer, in 2015. Her second YA novel, Exo, was released last year, with both novels garnering high praise and numerous awards and nominations. Her adult epic fantasy debut, Jade City, was released in November from Orbit Books, billed as The Godfather with magic and kung fu. Originally from Calgary, Canada, but now residing in Portland, Oregon, when not writing, she enjoys smart action movies, practicing martial arts, and enjoying awesome food. Joining us on Skype today from Portland, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Fonda Lee to the show. Fonda, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We are excited to have you on. Uh, there's no doubt this interview could go very long. You're a very talented writer with a lot of accolades already to your career, even though it's just started in 2015, just a few years ago. But I'm very excited to have you on today. And I was doing prep for the show. I, I found out that you were from Canada, and I think that explains a lot. Uh, we've got a lot of 
guests from Canada we've had on the show before, uh, R. Scott Baker and Steven Erickson and Michael R. Fletcher. And there's no doubt that you folks up there have got something going on with that exposure to the constant cold. And I'm not sure what's going on, but you guys write some pretty brutal fantasy up there. And I think Jade City is a pretty brutal title for your debut epic fantasy. I've been reading it and Phil's been listening to the audiobook and we're enjoying the hell out of Jade City and we're glad to get you on today to talk about it and promote it to the world and let our listeners uh, uh, know about it. So we're going to get into uh, the book a little bit and and preview it and let folks uh, get a, a little taste of what Jade City has to offer. So I guess we'll just start off. Maybe just give us the scoop on your novel Jade City and why you think listeners might want to pick up a copy. So if the idea of a gangster family saga that takes place in an Asian-inspired modern-day metropolis with political intrigue and kung fu is at all interesting, then I would suggest uh, that person give Jade City a shot. Um, and if it doesn't sound at all interesting, then we probably can't be friends. That's that's pretty pretty much the scoop of it. So uh, Jade City, I started writing a long time ago. It took me about three years to write it. I had other books on contract. So it was a a passion project that I uh, started and put on hold a few times in order to work on other things. But um, I looked back in my notes from years ago and I had jotted down in my writing notebook just the title of the book. That was it. The first thing was Jade City. Hmm. And I had that before I had anything else. And then the notes I made to myself were something along the lines of a city where all combat is hand to hand and power rests in those who have jade. And, and um, then I wrote down something like Wuxia Gangster Saga. And that's it. There was like about three lines. And then it sort of sat in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, and I just kept coming back to it because I loved this idea of blending um, the gangster uh, saga traditions from both Western and Eastern um, narrative. So big fan of gangster movies, you know, Godfather and Goodfellas and the Untouchables and Scarface and all of that with... You know, Hong Kong gangster drama like Election and The Killer and A Better Tomorrow and you know all the Yakuza films. So I had those kind of going in there and this idea of um, of sort of taking that, putting it together with like kung fu and family politics and fantasy and magic um, just took hold of my imagination. So it took me a while to write it, and then it went out in the world and it. And Orbit picked it up, and I've been, uh, and then actually they they picked it up in um, March of 2017. It was out by November, so it has been a bit of a whirlwind. It took a long time to write, and now it's out in the world. That's pretty fast, March to yeah. November. Yeah, in the that's publishing like, world. In publishing world, it's like tomorrow. <laughs> Well, I'm already excited just hearing you talk about it. I've already started reading it. But uh, for listeners who want to pick up a copy, um, for every author that we have on the show, we always include an Amazon link in the show notes. So if you would like to drop by Amazon and go buy a copy of Jade City right now, we will not stop you. You can pause the podcast, go buy it, and then come back, start the podcast, and then we'll resume this interview here with uh, with Fonda Lee. So very exciting. So Jade City is is book one of the Greenbone Saga. Maybe tell us what a Greenbone is exactly and, and how saga is this saga going to be? So a green bone in this fantasy world is someone who wears magic jade. And it actually has its roots um, in sort of the mythology and the religion of this place, this fictional island that I created called Kacon. And the green bones are essentially a warrior caste. 
from this island. And historically, they were the warriors who had to train to be able to wear this magic um, substance because not everyone can do it. It actually has all these terrible side effects. And uh, you, you aren't trained, you can't control it. It actually has detrimental health um, issues associated with it. You can actually just go crazy and die. So the only people who could wear this jade were those that went through these years of rigorous training. And um, historically, these warriors were always the ones that defended the island um, particularly from foreign invasion. And the island has had a period of foreign occupation where another country um, essentially came in and, and colonized them. Um, but the Green Bones um, were the rebels and the resistance fighters who resisted this foreign oppression. And a generation ago, they liberated the country. And now many decades have passed. And, uh, you know, things are such that these former rebels and resistance fighters at the time have risen into power and become visible and central to the culture of this place. So they have divided into clans and the clans are essentially like a, a almost a shadow government, but like a mafia structure um, type of organization in this society. And we follow the story of um, one of the clans and uh, uh, its struggle against a rival. So are there are all these different clans in the story. Are the, Do they all have separate powers depending on what clan they are, or or they have similar powers throughout the story? Yeah, they have similar powers. I mean, the, there are two main clans, No Peak and the Mountain Clan, that were connected in the past but have um, since become rivals. And uh, the Jade connotes certain, gives, gives certain powers um, that, uh, that are, that basically have, uh, you, you train and go to these academies and each of the, um, clans has kind of an academy that's their primary sort of feeder academy. Um, but the powers that they have are broken out into kind of six main disciplines, if you will. And I drew the inspiration for those powers actually almost as a form of wish fulfillment because I'd been watching all these Kung Fu films and I also am a martial artist and have trained for many years and was like, I can't do any of that shit. Like, I can't run up walls. I can't, like, jump between buildings. I can't do chi blasts. Like, what is this? Like, I've been training for, you know, 10 or 15 years. And, like, this is really false advertising because <laughs> I watched those kung fu films and was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Um, but uh, but <laughs> it's, it reminds me of this one um, meme I saw on the internet. And, uh, and it was, like, some guy who was like, oh, you know, yoga is such bullshit because I've been, like, practicing it for six months and I can't breathe fire yet. <laughs> You're a certain age and played certain video games. That just that makes a lot of sense. And I, that's how I kind of felt about, uh, you know, the kung fu movies. So um, I divided the powers that these jade warriors have into these disciplines based on some of those sort of fantastical um, martial arts abilities. So they have... Um, strength, which is pretty self-explanatory. Steel, which is the ability to be like really vulnerable, like to you know take on uh, you know a blade and and like resist it. Um, they have uh, lightness, which is basically they can not entirely fly, but they can lift themselves up to the air. Um, perception, which is kind of like extrasensory ability to sort of sense other people. Like think of that you know classic kind of scene where the where the martial arts master walks into the room and he like immediately knows that there's like an assassin hiding in the rafters because he can like sense another heartbeat up mm -hmm. there so that's kind of perception um and then deflection which is 
sort of like the um, you know, so it's it's kind of like um, like force powers in in Star in the Jedi almost, but like the ability to sort of send these waves of energy that can physically move things. Um, what am I missing here? Oh, uh, perception, deflection, lightness, uh, channeling. Um, and channeling is like, like the chi blasts, like directing your energy into an opponent and stopping their heart. So think of like, you know, the end of Kill Bill 2, yeah. when the bride is like, five finger, and like he walks <laughs> faces and he dies. Like that's kind of, you know, that's sort of channeling. So, so that's kind of what I, I did to create these powers. And then the, the uh, warriors have to train for a long time in order to be able to master them. Oh, I want some magic jade. Yeah. I want some magic jade, I know. I was a white belt in karate when I was in third grade. And all I learned how to do was front kick. <laughs> so I could I could front kick the shit out of somebody. That's about all I can do. Have you been keeping up with that front kick? No, yeah, Phil? at least at least once a week I'll do like two or three. Nice. Nice. Nice and limber. You're a picture of discipline. And I used to do yoga, but I can't do the Dalsim uh, yoga fire either. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? I need to work on that. Yeah. But those are all like um, pretty incredible powers for gangsters to have. So I imagine they don't always use these abilities for good, considering they're gangsters. What kind of things uh, might uh, gangsters use these powers for? Yeah, so the, uh, the Greenbone clans in the story, even though they're kind of like they're gangsters but they're also much more than that they're kind of like the way the society functions so i base them in large part on um on like a blend of the mafia the triads and the yakuza and the yakuza in particular in japan are like basically they're, they're like semi-legitimate and in and in uh, jade city the gangsters are basically legitimate like everyone knows that they're there and you know it's not like they hide from the police they like go and influence politics and like meet with like you know, the higher ups and the, and the government and everything. Um, so they're using their powers to basically defend. They're almost like a, a, they, they're kind of an, an extra governmental security force, if you will. So they have these terror, they have split, these clans have split the city into territories and they defend those territories, not just from other clans, but also from like street criminals and, um, you know, other foreign criminals and uh you know they sort of um are sort of the law if you will on those streets so if you're like some small-time drug dealer you don't want to be caught on the street by one of these green bones because he will you know kick the shit out of you so you they are both um they're i mean they're essentially even though they're mafia they basically rule the city in the background um and they're using their um powers as they have historically to kind of defend the common people um, in the same way that like, you know, um, when the tsunami hit in Japan, it was actually like the Yakuza that were out there first with like relief supplies and like handing them out. They were kind of like a, like a, like a, a nonprofit organization, if you will. Um, so the green bones take on that, that that's the role they've historically had. Um, but of course now, because they are in these um, in this rivalry, they also just have uh, have these wars that are occurring between them. Um, and some innocent people might get caught in that crossfire because they're basically battling over over the streets um, and who controls different parts of the city. 
One cool visual aspect of the story I thought was really neat was the unique placement of the the, the jade. It's not like they just put jade in their pocket and they're they're just magic. They actually kind of uh, put it on their bodies in kind of a cool way. Could you maybe tell us uh, the most kind of dazzling, awesome jade bling that you have on one of your characters in the story? Yeah, so um, Hilo, who's one of the main characters um, in the story, is, he's he's definitely got the coolest jade bling. He has jade studded into his uh, into his chest and his collarbone. So he just leaves the first couple buttons of his shirt undone all the time so you can he can show off his jade. It looks just like a necklace of jade that's fused right into his flesh. Um, and I got this idea of like the jade not just being this magic substance, but also like a symbol of status and ornamentation um, from you know how much um, real life gangsters uh, use body mod as a as a status symbol, right? You've got the yakuza with their crazy full body tattoos, and you know the rough Russian mafia have got their tattoos, and like that sort of body mod is part of um, you know the that kind of mystique, that gangster mystique um, in our own world. So I modified that and made it fit into my fantasy world. Phil, what kind of jade would you wear? Would you do the collarbone <laughs> thing or? I'd want to. I'd want one of those. Uh, what do you call it when you stick it through your nose? Yeah. <laughs> I'd want one septum, of those. Yeah, septum jade. Yeah, septum septum jade. And maybe like a maybe like a tongue ring, like a jade tongue yeah, ring. Yeah, That'd be cool. Yep. Then I could stick out my tongue. And go. Don't fuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got. I. It's. It's kind of fun because when I introduce new characters, I have to think of like, oh, like how do they place the jade on their body? What does that say about the character? You know, I've got some that have got like got really like bolts through their ears and they're sort of ostentatious. And then I've got like another character who's kind of understated, you know, he doesn't want to show off. So he just kind of wears his jade on like, you know, these thumb rings. So every time I have a new character, I'm like, oh, how would he wear his jade or she? The technology level is kind of interesting in Jade City, too. It's not like a what you're usually known for, which is kind of futuristic stuff. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's more of a a less advanced sort of technology. Could you tell us a little bit more about the tech level you have in place for Jade City? Yeah, so Jade City takes place in kind of a recognizably modern time period, but um, not not our current day. So its tech level is pretty analogous to like our 1960s and 70s. Um, and there's a really specific reason for that. Um, one, because I wanted to... Actually, there's a couple specific reasons for it. First of all, I wanted to evoke that feel that uh, we are so used to, especially in, in gangster films, right? Like cars, guns, you know, all that is really only going to happen if I place this story in a modern setting. And I wanted to kind of evoke a very certain time period for this world as well, because um, if you think about our gangster stories, they're often like taking place in the 1920s, right? Roaring 20s or like 1950s or like the heyday of the five families of New York kind of thing. Um, and those periods in American history really correspond to when like there was a lot of social change and also a lot of economic growth. Um, and that was an opportunity not just for like, you know, the, the country, but for organized crime in the country to take advantage of that. So um, in Asia, that huge period of economic boom really kind of happened post-World War II, right? That was like the rise of the four Asian tigers in like Singapore and Taiwan, Japan, like they just took off like a shot. So there was this huge boom um, economically. And that's also when, you know, we see the rise of like the modern day triads and Yakuza. So I wanted to to cue all those things um, into the story. 
And that's kind of why I chose the time period that I did, um, which is, and it's been interesting seeing some of the reactions from people. Um, so, you know, a lot of people love it because they're like, oh, it's, it's great to have a fantasy story that's not medieval kings and horses and knights. Um, and some people are just confused. They're like, what? There's magic, but there's also cars? I don't get it. Like, why are there no cell phones? Like, I'm like, you were born in, like, past, you're, you're like a millennial if you're like, I don't get it. There's cars, but there's no cell phones. It's super confusing. <laughs> what the hell? That's interesting. <laughs> well, well, Phil and I are both, like, 37, 38, so we're, we're yeah. zennials, I think, Gen, Gen yeah, Xers. I, I, Gen, Gen X, yeah, zennials. So I think I think the setting was pretty clear. I think for both me and Phil, I think it's, it yeah. feels like a kind of an '80s almost. Like yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, did you have to do any like real research, like ride-alongs with gangsters or anything like that, to prep for it? Or I I did not ride along with any no. gangsters. I I do not personally know any gangsters, which oh, is okay. it's it's uh, it's funny because like you know real life gangsters are not very nice people, but I love <laughs> the mystique of the fictional gangster. Um, and I think it's because I, uh, I like this idea of, you know, the, the criminal who's motivated by something other than like greed, right? So like, we've got someone, we've got these characters who live, at least in like the gangster films and stories that I love, they're like, yeah, they live outside of the rules of society. And they kind of don't like, you know, hew to the law exactly. But they also have this like, these bonds of like brotherhood and family, right? All there's, it's no particular surprise that like, there's always a strong like family component, whether it's like the Italian American mafia or it's like these bonds of like, you know, um, uh, mentor student in like the Japanese Yakuza where they drink the sake and, you know, someone offends, they have to cut off their finger. So there's like all these ties of like brotherhood, loyalty, et cetera, that are kind of baked into these, these organized crime groups. So, so it gives, it, it creates a lot of potential for cool drama and narrative in fictional stories um, because you have these characters who are doing potentially not very nice things, but are motivated, um, not self-centeredly motivated, but also motivated by like this loyalty to their family, to their group. Great uh, potential for human pathos. Yeah, no doubt the story setting and, the characters and everything that you have uh, coming into play uh, is going to create for some rich storytelling. And it looks like you've got, a, what, a trilogy planned for the series? I do. So it will be three books. I am hard at work on the second book. And what's the title for book two? Do you have that yet? Or it, I do. So the second book will be called Jade War. Oh, interesting. Does it have cell phones in it? No cell phones in it. <laughs> yeah. Shit. <laughs> Maybe by book three. And I mean, there will be, there, time will pass, so I'm, I'm not sure yet exactly where, where the third book will end, time period-wise. But yes, we'll, what we'll see is the story of this family. So my vision of this series is very much that it is the saga of this family, this clan. And so we'll, we'll get to kind of see other parts of the world. There's going to be other conflicts, and you know, the story will expand, but it'll always stay kind of centered on this family you didn't do any um ride-alongs with gangsters which is unfortunate uh for for your research um but no doubt a uh, memoir though okay okay like a lot of interviews like I, I was like looking up like interviews with like yakuza members i watched like a ton of like documentaries hmm. about like different organized crime groups um 
like History Channel has this like whole long series that's just like all these different organized crime groups. So I like ended up doing like a, sh- a sh- considerable amount of nonfiction reading for um, for this book, which was fun, and 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 watching lots of documentaries and watching a ton of both Hong Kong and like American gangster films and calling it work. So I love that thing. I love that's the thing I love about being a, a novelist is like you can basically like watch movies all day and be like, yeah. <laughs> um, for my first book, Zero Boxer, I think I, you know, spent a lot of hours like watching UFC and being like, this is research. I have to do this. <laughs> no choice. And you actually have a martial arts background. I wanted to dive in that for, for just a moment because no doubt martial arts plays a role in Jade City uh, with combatants using weapons and attacking and, and such. Could you give us a little bit about uh, your, your martial arts background, please? Yeah, so um, I started, like Phil, I started training in karate when I was a kid, uh, but progressed beyond the um, the front kick. <laughs> oh, wow. What's after yeah. that? What's after I the know. front kick? <laughs> no. I mean, their sidekick. Oh, oh shit. <laughs> sidekick. Uh, Mind blown. Stuck around to, to yellow belt, probably would have learned that sidekick. Damn it. And then there's roundhouse kick, you know, what? back kick, rust kick, <laughs> all these kicks. So I continued, and then I, I ended up getting a um, second-degree black belt in karate and, and trained um, for about a decade or so and uh, fell off the wagon a little bit. And I moved, changed jobs, had kids, and then I got back into martial arts and started studying kung fu. So now I train primarily in that um, because I was like, I really wanted to learn more weapons. So I joined a kung fu school so I could learn like broadsword and like spear. That's awesome. Stuff like that. So um, that and then like animal forms like tiger form and um, mantis form. So um, so I've been doing that and uh, and it's it's uh, certainly um, just been something like writing that I that's kind of just been a, a thread in my life. So um, sometimes it obviously bleeds into my writing and sometimes it is also an escape. From writing where I can be frustrated about my manuscript and just go punch stuff. Well, you mentioned the uh, uh, UFC doing research when you were writing Zero Boxer. Um, I, I'm actually really interested in the original concept of UFC, which was to put different martial arts against each other to determine what was the superior martial art. And being that you've studied both karate and uh, kung fu, do you feel one has more advantages over the other for people who would be studying martial arts? You know, I I don't. I think I've certainly seen, I think enough, met enough martial artists and seen enough martial arts that I think, uh, you know, it's really the practitioner, not the style. Um, Every style's got something to offer and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. So you know, clearly, if you if you study uh, Muay Thai, that's going to give you some awesome kicking ability. But, uh, you know, you're going to have to go somewhere else if you want to learn to fight on the ground. You know, you're going to have to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or whatever. Um, so I, I think that uh, I think there each style does have things that it's particularly strong in. Um, karate is a really great fundamental martial art for building a good posture, stance, movement crispness power um and which is why i think it's it's the martial art that a lot of um practitioners start with and uh you know kung fu i think is is more fluid and in my martial arts training has given me 
kind of more fluidity and and uh, a different kind of way of moving um, than than karate did. And so I end up personally, they sort of come together for me and make me, I think, a, a better martial artist. And then ideally, I'd love to do more. I'd, I'd love to find time to study some Brazilian jiu-jitsu because I, I did so much research for it or uh, kendo. You know, like I'd love to do other stuff. I just don't have like, you know, three lifetimes to do it all, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think any martial art has something to offer. It really does. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, what appeals to you and, and kind of, um, you know, are you, are you the sort of person who wants to do a more internal art or a more external art or more athletic or more focused on strengthening and position or whatever it is. So I think every art has something to offer, but that whole concept that you mentioned, Phil, the idea of putting different martial artists into the ring to actually have them duke them out is kind of what's given rise to, you know, our modern day MMA system where it's not one system, right? It's like the modern, the, the MMA um, athletes today, they train boxing and Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and kickboxing. And, you know, some of them have like, you know, karate background or whatever it is, they're bringing it all to the table. Yeah, I find that I find the fighters that have something a little bit different always interested me the most. Like uh, uh, Dioto Machida was always really oh, yeah, interesting yeah. because yeah. He, ha- he has a karate background and he, oh, right. Of course, and then there's there's this like a move where he does where it's basically like that kick at the end of Karate Kid, like he just fronts. Like <laughs> yeah, front kick. Out. It's a front kick. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I always found him interesting because. When I first started watching him, I thought, man, this guy's really boring. But what he's doing is he's like master of like counter moves. Yeah. And and anytime somebody would do a move on him, he would have an answer for it. And then the more I watched him, the more I be- thought he he's actually one of the best fighters I've ever seen just because he's so patient. And I right. think that that's what makes him uh, so interesting as a fighter. So, right. um I used to watch a lot of martial martial arts uh, in the past. I haven't watched so much now. And I think it's because part of it is, like you said, everybody kind of does everything. So uh, sometimes I don't feel like certain fighters stand out as as much these days as they did in the past because everybody kind of does everything. So yeah, it's like everyone has to be good at everything because if you've got a weakness in some area – you know, people are going to exploit it. If they know that your like stand-up game's not good, you know, they'll, they'll fight you stand-up game. Or if you're not great on the ground, they'll take you to the ground. So, um, so yeah, in a, in a, in a way there was more variation. Well, there was more variation in the early days because, um, you know, they were still, the sport was still developing. People were figuring out what would work. Um, and now you kind of, it's like, they sort of have, uh, have dialed that in more. And then we can add magic to it. We could. I mean, that's. Then you got then you got people throwing fireballs at each other, front kicking each other, front yeah, kicking the shit fun. out of each other. <laughs> I, I want to see a front kick championship. Just people front kicking the shit out of each other. <laughs> well, I expect you to win that one, Phil. Yeah, I'm gonna win. <laughs> Do you have like a weekly practice or like do you go to the gym weekly or anything like that to, to practice martial arts right now, Fonda? 
I do. I, I practice about two or three times a week, but, uh, man, an author, um, travel schedule really throws a wrench into all that. <laughs> it's, it's been, uh, it's been a little hard over the last few months, but, um, I mean, it's great. I've been on, I've been traveling and talking to people and doing festivals and stuff. Um, but when, when I am at home, I do to try to uh, make sure I practice, um, pretty regularly. And could you give us maybe just a couple of ways that you think uh, maybe practicing martial arts has helped you as a writer? You know, I certainly do think that, like, it gives me grounding for writing fight scenes. And I wouldn't even say so much in, like, specific moves, um, because I've written fight scenes that have, you know, very little to do with the martial arts that I practice. Like, I had, I mean, Zero Boxer is writing fight scenes that takes place in zero gravity. I've never fought in zero gravity. Pretty sure I would lose. (laughs) Um, but you know, I think it, it, and, and now, you know, in Jade City, there's all these fight scenes that have magic and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing fight scenes where they're, where they're using magic against each other. Um, but I, I think having the background in martial arts does help, um, in terms of kind of thinking about, uh, you know, what uh, the way, um, I might imagine that happening or blocking it out. Um, so there, are, there's like just flat out, you know, certain part, certain parts of fight scenes that I like take from things I've seen in training. Um, but I also just have an enthusiasm for writing them. And you know, some people are like, "Oh, it's really hard to fight write fight scenes." I'm like, "Oh, this is this is the candy part of the writing." <laughs> um, so I can always kind of get to that part and be like, "Okay, I've got a fight scene coming up. Like, this should be smooth sailing." So I, I think uh, I think it has helped in that regard, and also just um, knowing that, like, uh, I mean, I will say some martial artists um, have a hard time writing fight scenes because they get too technical, like they get too blow by blow. They're like, I have all this knowledge, so I'm just gonna put it all on the page. It's like kind of the same with you know, it's like over world building, but it's like over fight scene. Mm. Uh, you know, blocking where it's like he threw this technique and then she threw this technique and et cetera. Um, so I try to make sure that uh, that's not the case. The fight scene should always be about the characters and about their motivation, about their emotions. And, and the fight should have a rhythm and a purpose and a tone. So uh, so I always keep that in mind when I'm writing them. Yeah, your fight scenes are awesome. Just oh, good. Putting it out there. They're pretty intense, and you can definitely tell there's a, that martial arts background. And then you're just a good writer. You win. Well, you've got a Nebula nomination, so congrats on that. So thank you. Uh, in addition to numerous uh, nominations you've already received for your previous uh, YA novels, and uh, you won, you picked up a couple awards as well. So you you write good, Fondly. Oh, the, thank you. The jury thank is you. out, and and you've been found guilty. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to be found guilty if that that is <laughs> idea. Uh, when does that Nebula nomination uh, become a, a win? When does that get announced? Oh well, I don't know when it becomes a win. That's up mm. to the voters. But it mm-hmm. is um, the uh, the awards happen I, at the end of May. Okay, uh, and they'll be at the Nebula conference in Pittsburgh. I think it's like May twentieth or something like that. Since this is the Grim Tidings podcast, we usually talk about Grimdark on occasion. We've had a few Grimdark authors on here. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that this book is is Grimdark, but you did write before that you do enjoy writing moral ambiguity and gritty and propulsive action scenes right. uh, as well. And grittiness and moral ambiguity are two like check marks for yeah. the Grimdark subgenre, I would say. Yeah. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about uh, how you write moral ambiguity and some of those gritty action scenes and how you utilize your skills to write that stuff? 
I, I would almost say it's funny because like when um, when this book came out, I saw it kind of getting mentioned as grimdark adjacent. Um, like you said, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not exactly grimdark. I didn't go out with the intention of writing something grimdark, but um, there's certainly, like you said, check marks uh, in grimdark um, that uh, that are in this book that are in in, in my work in general. Um, and I would I love moral ambiguity and grittiness in fiction um, because I think it creates just more nuance and complexity in characters and their development. Um, I have never been a big fan of just like flat out good versus evil stories. And I like bringing that moral gray zone to pretty much every story that I write. I don't think there's any story I've written where it's like, oh yeah, this is like clearly the good guy and the bad guy. I mean, even, even in my young adult fiction, um, I wrote a, you know, an alien invasion story because I was kind of sick of aliens always just being like portrayed as evil, either, either evil aliens that are here to invade and exterminate or enslave us or good aliens like spock and alf and (laughs) so i'm kind of sick of that dichotomy especially in young adult fiction um and wanted to write an like an alien story where it wasn't clear who were the good guys and the bad guys and like why in particular has a lot of like the rebels are fighting against the evil empire well i had a a character i wrote a character who is he's part of the collaborationist government in a world where human race is be is part of a, a greater galactic empire has been colonized and you i want to make the reader question like are these rebels that want earth to be for humans only are they the good guys or are they the bad guys in this situation um they're neither right like they're they are they freedom fighters or are they terrorists you know and i i want like even teen my teen readers to question that um and you know, in Jade City, and I think just like gangster fiction in general, part of the appeal is that you're really rooting for these characters who have really questionable methods. But part of you really admires them. Like you want to be able to do some of the things like, I mean, who hasn't stood in a like long line at the post office and been like, this is super frustrating. I mean, this would go a lot quicker if I could just break someone's kneecaps. Or like, you know, like, you know, there's like those moments when you're like, God, like, yeah, I can, you can, you can relate to, you know, that desire to visit vengeance on those people who hurt your loved ones by, you know, giving them some cement shoes. So I think there's, there's that part of us that sees these, these gangster antiheroes, if you will, and is like, yeah, I, I get that. Like, I relate to that. Um, and yeah, they're also human beings especially in like you know a movie like the godfather you can see like those human interactions and like those relationships and yeah like okay they're they're you know they're a a mafia organization but they have family weddings and sit down and eat like cannoli like the rest of us like you know there's i i just love that like you realize that not just realization but the acknowledgement that good people do bad things and bad people do good things and there's not this like stark, you know, we're, we're like good magic or, or light magic versus dark magic. I think that's one of the tropes that annoys me is when there's, oh, obviously the light magic and there's the dark magic. And magic is is only in my mind like light or dark based on who's using it and for what purpose. Yeah, um, you have a lot of different influences here, obviously, uh, the, the gangster movies and uh, magic from uh, various fantasy stories 
Um, but let's talk a little bit about action movies, which is one of uh, my favorite topics as well. You have mentioned The Matrix as being a, a big uh, influence on you, and I think anyone that saw that movie in 1999 or whatever it came out uh, immediately started moving in slow motion and um, <laughs> right. you know, trying to do the run on the wall thing and falling yep. over and busting their ass. Um, <laughs> what are some of the uh, influences that you have from action movies that that you feel bleed over into your writing? Yeah, I mean, the Matrix, the Matrix is a good example because um, one of the things I appreciated about the Matrix was this combination of like cool, like modern slash futuristic setting world building plus Kung Fu plus like clearly there's some Eastern influence in there. Like a lot of the like underlying philosophy of the Matrix, you've got kind of this Buddhist aspect to it. Plus really awesome fight choreography uh, and stylism. So uh, so that's like a good example um, of, of that kind of genre blending uh, that, I, that I like. And, uh, you know, when it comes to action movies, you know, I am influenced I sort of in the same way, I'd say, with gangster movies where I have that um, this desire to kind of take both the Eastern and Western influences and find ways to like mash them together. Um, so I was talking about like, you know, gangster dramas, uh, verse in, in American cinema versus Asian cinema. And the same thing goes for action movies, right? Like w- watched a lot of like Kung Fu films, you know, everything from like Shaw brothers, classic, like, you know, um, films to crouching tiger, hidden dragon, the raid, like all those films. Plus I like, you know, love all the action films on the Western side, especially ones that are like little more, gritty and realistic and, and, you know, less, I guess, fantastical balletic. So I sort of have both of those in my mind when I'm, when I'm thinking of uh, creating a tone in my work. And so you can, you can see there's like sort of the cool, like moves taken from Kung Fu films. um, But hopefully like infused with more of a kind of like street grittiness aspect um, that you would find uh, in other action films. So I don't know. It all just kind of mashes together in my brain and hopefully comes out as something that feels fresh. Yeah, I think uh, genre blending is something that, that I feel is the next step for fantasy fiction. Uh, I know you've, you've written about uh, medieval fantasy kind of being the template that people go with when you mention mm-hmm. epic fantasy. And I've made this comment before that I think a lot of traditional fantasy tends to be very safe. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, YA writers are actually embracing more of the capabilities that fantasy has and being able to blend different genres together. Um, so do you think for people that want to do that kind of genre blending, is YA a good place to start for people who are more interested in that rather than the more traditional kind of fantasy story that would take place in a medieval setting? Well, I think uh, there is some fabulous stuff going on in YA fiction. I also think that there is a lot of hunger and opportunity to be more daring in adult fantasy and to do new and different things. Um, And I think we're seeing a lot of that. Like uh, Fantasy coming from different time periods, different cultures, different mythologies, um, that's blending different things. I think we are seeing that in adult fantasy. Um, and I think there's a hunger for that. 
I would say that like, you know, 10 years ago, if someone had been like, hey, name some non-Western European based fantasy, one would have been hard pressed to like name many that had come out that year. Well, as like, I feel like I could easily rattle off a number of them now. So I think there's definitely, um, uh, definitely a, a growing sense that fantasy um, can can be more than what it has been traditionally. Um, one nice thing about YA is that all the YA sits together on one shelf, right? So nobody is saying like, well, you know, this is historical, this is romance, this is um, science fiction, whatever, and putting them in different parts of the bookstore like they do in adult fiction. With YA, it's just, it's all in one shelf. So you do see, I think, a little bit more freedom to mash things up and cross genres because it's all going to be in YA. But I would say if you want to write a YA book, you know, write a YA book. Uh, if you want to write an adult book that's different and new and exciting, by all means do that. I think that that, uh, that will be embraced. Yeah, I think it's becoming more common these days, but the the public perception, if you say you're a fantasy writer, uh, people right. that aren't aware of what's happening may immediately go to the Lord of the Rings or oh, something for sure. like that. Right, right. And in a, way, in a way, it's just a result of success, right? Like, especially the fact that Game of Thrones has become so mainstream. People think that is what, and because Game of Thrones is working, you know, in, in, a, in a Tolkien-esque tradition of setting and and uh, and time period um but i think that we will see uh we'll see different things you know like now that um you know nettie akorafor's uh, series is gonna be on television you know that will that could change people's perceptions quite mm -hmm. a bit for sure. uh, you know uh nk jemison's broken earth trilogy is is being adapted for television so we're gonna see different stuff um that would be very cool and then jade city maybe next the next big series, HBO. That would be, I mean, Showtime. I already have a Dreamcast. <laughs> ah, who's your Dreamcast? You have a couple characters picked out? Or? Now, they're, now they're like, you know, all mostly too old for the. For oh, the okay. <laughs> yeah. Were there any particular challenges um, transitioning from YA novels to uh, the adult novel? Any, anything that you had to significantly shift uh, other than maybe character ages or um, any sort of focus that you had to put on with the adult stuff versus the YA? I would, I mean, Jade City is a far larger um, and more complicated work um, than my YA fiction. And it was a story that had to be told as an, as an adult novel because it is one with different characters of different ages and a cast of characters in this, in this large sweeping world. Um, YA fiction, my YA fiction is a very, it's a, it's a straightforward narrative with one main character. And uh, those are great. I love those. Um, we'll keep writing them. Um, but this was a different type of story and it necessitated a, you know, a different thing. It's funny that people often ask, well, was it different switching from YA to adult? Well, no, because I was always writing them at the same time. Um, so the way publishing worked, yeah, my YA novels got published first, but my adult fiction, I was working on this book while I was writing my YA novels. So in my mind, I've always written both. And it just so happened that, you know, the YA the why fiction is shorter and so it was done quicker and got out into the market um, sooner. But it, it, I, I approach them, um, you know, I don't feel like my voice is very different necessarily across my YA versus my adult books, which is why I, I have the same name. I didn't feel like I needed to take a pen name um, for, mm -hmm. for uh, you know, to differentiate because I feel like people who enjoy my adult fiction will enjoy my YA fiction. 
um, and vice versa. But um, it it does give me more freedom because to read YA fiction, uh, you would think that everything that is cool happens to sixteen year olds, which is just not true. I mean, I hope not. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> so, cool, nothing cool happened to me when I was sixteen. <laughs> right. So you know, I have a lot more freedom um, in my adult fiction to have you know characters of different generations interacting in cool ways and all like just a lot more. Um, you know, nuance that can be brought to the world through these multiple POVs. I am glad, though, that I did my, I had my YA novels come out first because YA really taught me to write in a focused way. Like, it's always an eye on the mind of this character and on this, this focused narrative. And that helped me a lot when I was writing Jade City because this was a story that could have just sprawled completely out of control because there's so many moving pieces and, um, you know, feeling that even more so as I, as I write the next book. Um, and that experience of, of writing tight pacing and tight focus helped me. So if you're interested in, in reading Fonda Lee's work, uh, here's an analogy for you for people that love analogies. Mm -hmm. Some people love my analogies. Yes, they do. Uh, the red pill is the YA uh, <laughs> stuff, and the blue pill is her adult fantasy stuff. Mm -hmm. You can take both pills. <laughs> you can't you take both. And you'll be fucking awesome. Yeah, yeah you, you'll ascend to another plane. And that's why we're here today. You'll just yeah. become. You'll just become the front kick master <laughs> of the world. <laughs> And then uh, FondaLee.com is the website for folks who want to drop by. And you got, you got a sweet website, by the way. You oh, didn't, thank you. Spared no expense for that one. Um, and then social media, where can folks uh, follow you? They can find me on Twitter at FondaJLee. And uh, I'm on Facebook as well. And yeah, other than that, you can find me through my website. Pick up Jade City. Again, the link is in the show notes. I think we've just hit the tip of the iceberg, and I doubt this is the first time that Fonda Lee will drop by the Grim Tidings podcast. Fonda, would you join us again sometime and maybe I when the next book comes out? Or? Absolutely. Anytime. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us. Best of luck with all of your future writerly endeavors. And thanks again for joining us here on the show today. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Fonda Lee for joining us on the podcast. Hang out in just a moment. Fonda will give us a special reading from Jade City, a special excerpt. The paperback is available now from Orbit Books. Be sure to check the show notes for the link to Amazon and pick up a copy today. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you can, leave a review. Follow us on Patreon.com slash The Grim Tidings Podcast. And for only $3 a month, you too can support the show and be a part of the Grim Dark community like never before. Be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grim Dark. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Grim Dark Fiction. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you here next time on the Grim Tidings Podcast. If you love the authors you've heard on the Grim Tidings Podcast, then you'll love Grim Dark Magazine. Interviews, articles, reviews, and the premier magazine for grimdark fiction by authors such as Mark Lawrence, R. Scott Baker, Deborah Wolf, and more. Get knee-deep in grit. Log on to grimdarkmagazine.com. So this is an excerpt from Jade City, and it is from the point of view of one of the main characters, Lon, 
and it is a, a flashback to him um, remembering an episode from his childhood. Unlike his siblings, Lon remembered his father. In the last year of the Many Nations War, some months before Kal Dushiram fell in one of the final battles against the beleaguered Shotarian army, Lon asked his father, who will be in charge of Kakon when the Shadis are gone? Will it be you? No, said Kal Du indulgently. It won't be me. Will it be Granda or Ait Jen? It won't be any of us. We're green bones. His father was copying a list of names, a train schedule, and a map onto three separate sets of paper and sealing them in unmarked envelopes. Gold and jade, never together. Why do people say that? Lon had often heard the phrase in casual conversation. Gold and jade was a Kekanese idiom that referred to greed and excess, an inappropriate level of overreach. A person hoping for too much good fortune might be warned, don't ask for gold and jade. A child who demanded a custard tart after already having had a sweet bun was, Lon knew from personal experience, likely to be scolded. You want gold and jade together, Lon's father glanced up at him with a squint. For a moment, Lon was afraid that his persistent questions had annoyed his father and he would be sent out of the room so the man could finish his task in peace. Caldew was not a regular presence in the house. He and Lon's grandfather were gone for long periods of time on secretive missions. And when they were back, Lon's grandmother and mother treated the occasion like a personal visit from the gods. A great honor, an unnatural disruption, something to be celebrated but best gotten through quickly. Caldew kissed his children but did not know how to relate to them. He spoke to Lon as he would an adult. In the other room, Lon's infant brother Hilo wailed as their mother tried to comfort him. A long time ago, many hundreds of years before the Shotarians came, there were three kingdoms on Kakon. Kaldu spoke while directing half of his attention back to his lists and maps. The kingdom of John along the northern coast where we are now, Hunto in the central basin, and Taido on the southern peninsula. Hunto was the strongest, but the Hunto king was thin-blooded and obsessed with jade. One night he went horribly insane from the itches and swept through the palace, murdering his family, including his own children. Lon's eyes shifted to the ample jade his father wore around his neck and wrists. Noticing this, Kaldu grinned and snatched Lon by the arm, pulling him close with rough affection. Does that worry you, son? Kaldu yanked his talon knife from the sheath on his belt and held it up between them. Lon could see how fine the edge was, how the hilt was weathered to his father's hand. Are you worried about your da? What might happen to him? Kaldu asked. No, Lon said, his voice calm. At the age of eight, he knew that all the men of his family were greenbones, and this meant they wore jade and swore oaths to a secret clan that fought against the injustice of the foreigners. Good, said his father, his arm still tight around Lon's shoulders. You needn't be. Some people are meant to carry jade, and some aren't. You are. So is your little brother, same as your da and granda. Here, hold the talon knife. Don't you have one of your own yet? Gods, you should. I ought to have seen to that already. Go on, it's only a few stones. It won't hurt you. Lon held the weapon and spun it in his grip the way he practiced with a toy knife. The jade pieces in the hilt were smooth to the touch and made his chest buzz in a warm and pleasant way, as if he'd taken a great gasp of air after holding his breath for a long time. His father looked on approvingly. Lon said, So what happened? After the king killed his family, Kaldu took his talon knife and returned it to its sheath. With the Hunto royal family all dead, the kingdoms of John and Tiedo invaded and carved it up between them then went to war with each other. Eventually, Kakon was united. From then on, it was decreed for the safety of the country that those who govern would not wear jade, and those who wear jade would not govern. In the other room, Hilo's colicky screams, which had blissfully abated, started up again with renewed vigor. Curse that howler demon of a baby, Lon's father growled, but a smug smile crept over his exasperation. The oft-quoted Kekanese old wives' tale was that the more unmanageable the infant, the better fighter he was destined to become. 
In the distance, a new sound pierced the night, air raid sirens over John Loon, shrieking atop Hilo's bawling. Lon's father ignored the noise and continued in a calm undertone. A man who wears the crown of a king can't wear the jade of a warrior. Gold and jade never together. We Greenbones live by Aisho. We defend the country from its enemies and the weak from the strong. Kaldu held his son out at arm's length. His left eye narrowed and his expression grew thoughtful. After this war is over, after the Shotties are defeated, the clan will have to rebuild the country and protect the people from disorder. I don't think I'll be alive to see it, Lance, but you'll have to be a different kind of Greenbone than me.